Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast in which we shall learn about democratic socialism and how to explain it because socialism and the freedoms it provides turns out to be a lot more American than we tend to think. Clips today come from Washington State Indivisible, The Tom Hartman Program, The Benjamin Dixon Show, Backstory, A Progressive Faith Sermon from Dr. Roger Ray, Deconstructed, The Dig from Jacobin, and Hear the Burn. You talk about the Green New Deal, you talk about Medicare for All, uh, you talk about uh, student debt, and um, that brings up what we know is going to be Trump's tactic in the 2020 election, which is to demonize those programs and use socialism as a cudgel. Um, and it might work because uh, while the issue of socialism polls well, as I said, with younger voters, it does less well with older voters. Um, that same Pew poll had the majority of people ages 30 to 65 and older viewing it negatively. So how does the DSA advise on pushing back against what we know will be Trump's narrative on socialism? So I think the way that a lot of activists see this, and I think people that have knocked on doors would understand as well, is that you're not going to win an abstract argument about what socialism is or is not. But instead, if you're door knocking with someone, talking about the concrete changes that we want to see, talking about better workplaces where we're actually paid a fair wage, talking about these transformations where we have affordable housing that doesn't cost 50% of our paycheck where we can actually get the medical treatment we want. So focusing on these concrete things and conversations, one-to-one conversations with people, is how we actually change hearts and minds. And it's not about sitting there and having a discussion on Twitter or Facebook or in some abstract way around what socialism is or is not. So I think when it comes to winning people over to our ideas or our policies that really want to see you know, human suffering alleviated and more fulfilling lives. It comes from speaking to a more concrete basis on a more day-to-day understanding of what these policies are. Because when we talk to people, what we see in the polls, obviously, is that a lot of these policies are immensely popular. It has been funny to see, too, that when Fox News talks about socialism, what they're talking about is like, how dare they want to make public education affordable for everyone? (laughs) So when they actually talk about the things that socialists believe in, it's quite funny how how much it supports already the the kinds of ideas that we're putting forward and the kind of ideas that, that we're organizing around and talking to people every day. Well, you talk about the broad popularity of some of these programs. I mean, there are social programs that we use today. Social Security and Medicare uh, are broadly popular. In fact, even Trump Republicans don't want to get rid of those services. Uh, makes you wonder if there's a way to, to use that fact to shed some light on socialism. Yeah, absolutely. I think, too, when you talk to most Trump voters, and I think that's something that we have to keep in mind, is that most Trump voters are not in favor of huge tax cuts for the rich and for the kind of economic policies that Trump's actually put forward, but are largely interested in transformations around Medicare, housing, their wages that have suffered, good jobs, you know, the heroin epidemic that faces a lot of these communities, basic public safety, things that we all care about. So again, I think it's having these conversations and you're not going to win, obviously, some Republican who's been sitting on those tax cuts and has largely benefited from Trump and neoliberal policies over to our side. But if you're out talking to working class people about these basic material needs, people resonate with these uh, with these demands.
on the Democratic side right now, we're having a debate about the word socialism. Actually, it's it's happening all across the spectrum in America. And frankly, I think we'd be better served if instead we were debating the word freedom. The local newspaper here, the Oregonian, uh, uh, Sunday, yesterday, was reporting that in, in our little state, it's got 1.6% of the nation's population, our little state, there are 100, uh, 156,000 families who spend more than half of their income on rent and have no savings. These are the people who one car, one bill, car repair bill, one medical bill, loss of their job, and they are literally homeless. They're on the streets. 156,000 right on the edge. And the right-wingers would characterize that as freedom, right? That's, that's liberty. I mean, it's kind of ironic that the nation founded on the world's greatest known genocide, I mean, the systematic state murder of tens of millions of Native Americans, and over three centuries of legalized slavery and a century and a half of oppression and exploitation of the descendants of those slaves. Um, the irony is extraordinary. It presses us all to bring tr- true freedom to America and liberty to all Americans. But what do those words mean? I mean, if you ask the Kochs and their buddies, like Freedom Works, right, who slap these words, freedom and liberty, on everything they do, you'd get a definition that basically says that you're free if you're free from taxes or from regulation. And truth be told, if you're morbidly rich, that makes a certain amount of sense, right? Particularly if your main goal is to get richer and richer and you don't care about the impact of that on society, on the environment, on working class people, or even on the ability of the government to function. On the other hand, if your definition of freedom and liberty is the one that has been embraced by democratic socialist countries like Canada, Europe, most of Europe, Japan, Australia, then you have a definition that's quite different. And it's very close to the one that Franklin Roosevelt embraced in 1944, in January of 44, when he gave his second Bill of Rights speech. And he, he proposed these amendments to the Constitution to put into the Constitution that you have a right to a job. That's freedom. That you have a right to be paid enough to live comfortably from that job. That's freedom. That you have the right to adequate food, clothing, and recreation. That that's freedom. That you have the right to start a business and run it without, quote, worrying about unfair competition and domination by monopolies, end quote. That you have the right, quote, of every family to a decent home. That you have the right to, quote, adequate medical care to achieve and enjoy good health. That government, the right to government-based uh, protection from economic fears of old age, sickness, accident, and unemployment, and the right to a good education. That's what Franklin Roosevelt laid out. And he said, with all these rights... That's what guarantees the American notion of freedom. In fact, he said all these rights spell security, and he added, quote, America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part on how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for our citizens. For unless there's security here at home, there can't be lasting peace in the world. Now, all those other nations that I mentioned, in Japan, China, Germany, France, Spain, uh, Italy, the United Kingdom, uh, I mean, you name it, right? Uh, the, the, the developed democracies, they all, they all believed in what Roosevelt said, and they adopted 
pretty much everything that he proposed for the United States, put it into their constitutions or put it into law. Now, in the United States, if we go back a little bit, you know, FDR was president from 33 to, to 44 or 45. I forget which year he died. And it, from 1920 to 1932, we had rule by Republicans, Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge and, and, uh, and, and Hoover. And, uh, Hoover. I'm forgetting his first name. And it was a disaster. I mean, Warren Harding campaigned on dropping the top tax rate from 91% down to 25%, which he did. He campaigned on privatizing government functions, which he did. He campaigned on reducing government regulation, which he did. And it led straight to the Republican Great Depression, which is what they called it up until after World War II. And during Roosevelt's presidency, you know, you had 30,000 Nazis assembling in Madison Square Garden. The Klan was exploding. The biggest of the right-wing groups was called the Liberty League, sort of like the Koch's Freedom Works. And so after he gave that speech about freedom, or in that speech about freedom, he went on to say, Franklin Roosevelt, the grave dangers of rightist reaction in this nation. If history were to repeat itself and we were to return to the so-called normalcy of the 1920s, then it is certain that even though we shall have conquered our enemies on the battlefields abroad, we shall have yielded to the spirit of fascism here at home. So that's essentially what Roosevelt said. We either have these freedoms or we live under fascism. And this is, you know, we adopted a lot of what Roosevelt said. I mean, he said, you're not free if you're old and deep in poverty. So we have Social Security. He said, you're not free if you're hungry. So we have food stamps and SNAP. He said, you're not free if you're homeless. So we have housing assistance and homeless shelters. Although the Republican Party wants to gut all of these things. He said, you're not free if you're sick and can't get medical care. So we have Medicaid, Medicare, and Obamacare. Although the government, the Republicans want to gut all those. He, Roosevelt said, you're not free if you're not, if you're working more than 40 hours a week and still can't meet basic expenses. So we have minimum wage laws and the right to unionize, although the GOP wants to gut both. He said, Franklin Roosevelt said, you're not free if you can't read. So we have free public schools, although the GOP is actively gutting them. He said, you're not free if you can't vote. So we've passed numerous laws to guarantee the right to vote, although the GOP is doing everything they can to keep tens of millions of Americans from voting. The billionaire class and their wholly owned Republican politicians keep telling us that freedom means the government doesn't do any of those things I just mentioned. Instead, as as Ron Paul famously said in a Republican debate back in 2011, if you're broke and sick, you're free to die like a feral dog in the gutter. Freedom is homelessness in the minds of these billionaire Republicans. Poverty, lack of education, no access to health care, poor paying jobs, barriers to voting. All these things in their mind are signs of a free society, which, by the way, is why America's lowest life expectancy, highest maternal and childhood death rates and lowest levels of education and lowest pay are all Almost all. There's the one or two exceptions. Almost all in Republican-controlled states. Because that's what Republicans think means freedom. So instead of debating the meaning of socialism, frankly, I think the Democrats right now need to begin debating the meaning of the word freedom. Because the right has stolen that from us, and we need to take it back.
the first thing I want to start with is this clip that is about two years old from MSNBC. Uh, it is a clip that tries to explain to the MSNBC audience what democratic socialism is. The word most people focus on is socialism. But while democratic socialists pull some ideas from that ideology, they are not traditional socio socialists. Socialist. There is no call for communal ownership of production. Here's what else it is not. Communism. Most people use communism and socialism interchangeably, even Karl Marx. But communism is a political ideology, while socialism centers more on economics. They're related, but none of this has to do with democratic socialists. What they do call for is the enactment of certain socialist ideas through the democratic process, meaning everyone has a vote on whether they are a good idea or not. Mm -hmm. In many countries, democratic socialists work alongside other parties in broad coalitions. <laughs> Their goal is to control prices of essential services like medicine, banking regulations, affordable education, and the ability to work. All sounds reasonable. All of that is in the effort to minimize economic inequality and allow everyone in society to not just survive, but have the ability to thrive and enjoy life, a concept they call bread and roses. Fancy that. Everyone has an opportunity to survive and thrive, not just survive, but also thrive. Um, so let's start here. Democratic socialism, you know, it has. No, I want to go back a little bit further. Remember when they called uh, Barack Obama a socialist? It was the scariest thing um, that they had in their arsenal. And actually, I'm kind of grateful that they did that. Right. Because from 2008 until 2016, every single day, every major right wing media outlet, radio station, uh, television, all of them constantly pounded the fear drums of socialism, socialism. And then they got real fancy and did a whole chain of them. Socialist, Maoist, communist, fascist, Leninist. Right. They slid in fascist just for the scare tactic, not for consistency of ideological thought. But I digress. So for eight years, they did that. And scared the entire bejesus out of the entire country that Barack Obama was a socialist. When in reality, we all now know those of us who thought that he might have been something like a democratic socialist. We now know that Barack Obama was your standard fair capitalist. He was your standard fair neoliberal who fits right into the um, the economic paradigm of Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. Right. That is where we've been for the last 30, 40 years in this country, somewhere between. Uh, Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton is far closer to Ronald Reagan than he is an actual socialist. So the point is, is because they made everyone so fearful of socialism for so long. It began to wear off, you know, it didn't have the same impact. People weren't as concerned or as afraid of it because they heard it every single day. Enter in. Bernie Sanders, 2015, Elizabeth Warren decided not to run and um, Bernie Sanders did. And he comes in full throated, unapologetically a democratic socialist or a social Democrat, depending on who you argue with. Right. I'm going to use those interchangeably. And if you want to send me a correction, that's quite fine. But whatever. So, he, you know, he came out full throated in terms of democratic socialism. And as you look at, at Bernie Sanders. You have to be really clear about who he is and who he's not. Right. I describe him as post office socialism. Right. I describe him as firefighter socialism because it is exactly what America has been doing for a very long time. It's something that we have had ingrained in our society for a very long time. So he's not Bernie Sanders is not a radical. 
This is what I, I, I say to people all the time when they say, oh, he's too radical. Like, no, Bernie Sanders is not a radical. I know radicals, right? I can't even say that I hang out with radicals so much because I used to, but we just see, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. Bernie Sanders is the compromise. Bernie Sanders is as friendly as an offer as, as this society is going to get. And democratic socialism is merely saying we can have this system. We can reform this system. Yes, they, they are reformers. They're not revolutionaries. They are reformers. And they're saying we can, revol- we can reform the system to the point where everyone can thrive. Everyone can get beyond just mere survival. They can actually thrive. Listen to the second part of the clip from MSNBC. And if you think some of these ideas are too alien to American culture, take a look at this. Social Security is a pension system run by the government. Mm-hmm. Medicaid and Medicare are government-run medical services. Mm-hmm. Even Amtrak is a government-owned transportation system. All of these are hallmarks of democratic socialist policy. Right. This- exactly. There's nothing about Bernie Sanders' platform, nothing that he's trying to do that is remotely outside of what America has already done or other nations like the UK. I, I, I said it on the show yesterday and I've said it many times. The UK has had a single payer style system since 1949, 70 years, 71 years now, 71 years. They have had a single payer system where people in their uh, their citizenry can just go get treated and go home without having um, a, a enormous medical debt. Right. So they have had that for 70 years. And here we are in the United States of America, leaving all of our citizens at the at the mercy of capitalists making a profit off of people dying with cancer. So what Bernie Sanders is proposing and what Democratic Socialists are proposing, it is nothing outside of the norm. It is nothing that's terrifying. Uh, It's it's again what I called at the beginning of the show. It's post office socialism. It is as American as the post office. If you're looking for an elected socialist mayor today, you probably wouldn't start with the state of Mississippi. But Jackson, Mississippi, is where the Lumumba family has worked to establish a radical vision of an American socialist future. I recently spoke to Shakwe Antar Lumumba, a self-described radical socialist who's been Jackson's mayor since 2017. He's followed in his father's footsteps. From 2013 until he died in office, his father, Chakwe Lumumba, was Jackson's mayor and worked to bring socialist policies to the heart of the Deep South. Well, first and foremost, happy to join you in this conversation. And and this is a discussion which is near and dear to me. In order to give a proper framework of that history, it it stretches further back than, you know, either my father's election to uh, the office of mayor in 2013. You know, I come from a rich tradition and legacy of two parents that were activists and and moved us to Mississippi for the purpose of community building and work. My father was in Jackson, Mississippi in the early 70s doing work to help sustain and create self-determined communities. Out of that, he was at a a crossroads or or a point in his life where he was trying to determine whether he could pursue a legal career and still maintain that that vision and that goal. And he found his way to that. Mm. Later, gained a family after moving back to Detroit and uh, then had a case that lasted for two years in New York uh, and decided that they wanted to move to the South. And it was 
my father who who shared that we still had unfinished business in Mississippi. Mm. And that's why we moved here, not because we have family members in Mississippi, but because uh, we wanted to be a part of some work that we felt was important. My parents felt that giving their children a sense of community was as important part of nurturing us as giving us food, water, and shelter. Mm -hmm. And so whether the work, you know, we've been blessed to be a part of is categorized as socialist work, revolutionary work. It's work that recognizes that conditions as they exist are not sufficient for our people, and we have to dare to do something different. You've been on record as saying that you'd like to see Jackson become the, quote, most radical city on the planet. And I'm curious as to what you Mm -hmm. imagine that might look like in, say, you know, five years or 15 years, if this vision, you know, moves, as as, as you describe, from the ground up and from pothole to pothole to community to community. Well, I I think it's a city that that makes a drastic shift from from what has traditionally taken place, uh, waiting on someone to act on our behalf, being at the bottom of receiving so many resources to a city that demands control of their governance, demands control of how we develop and, and, you know, understanding that the future isn't coming, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed, uh, and demanding that, that they get their fair share and that, you know, we, we look at unity and look at equity in the process of what we build, understanding that development is more than just, you know, great edifices and, and you know, structures that we build, but being intentional about the souls that reside in a space and how we take care of them. You know, that that idea of being the most radical city on the planet surfaced out of what was initially a critique. It was a critique of myself, and, and prior to taking office, it was a critique of my father, you know, suggesting that possibly we were too radical to bring people together. And so, you know, I tell people I looked up the word radical, and I find that a radical is a person who seeks change. And if we look into communities that are in need of change, then the reality is that we should be as radical as the circumstances dictate we should be. And when we look across history at the people that we revere most, you mentioned Megger Evers. He was a radical. Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, who organized poor farmers in the Mississippi Delta, was a radical. Ida B. Wells, who dared to disseminate a message that was dangerous but necessary, uh, was a radical. Jesus Christ was a radical. And so I see it as a badge of honor. I don't even know if I'm deserving of it, right? Uh, but but we should see it as, you know, an opportunity to be a model more than just accomplish our ends and, and correct our problems as a city, but take a space that has been known for so much negativity historically and turn it into a space that that serves as a model for the rest of the world to to build off. Now, you've just outlined a pretty compelling you know, genealogy of folks from, from Jesus Christ through Ida B. Wells to Fannie Lou Hamer and up who have been espousing through one form or another a kind of you know, radical vision. And so I'm curious in terms of the bigger picture, what you make of, of the current moment, specifically you know, this tension that seems to be animating national debates now around socialism, be it the Green New Deal, be it around prison abolition, you know, ending kind of surplus you know, populations and the like um, you know, of workers. Right. I mean, what is it that you imagine to be the role of your administration and your city in shaping and bumping up against this national conversation? And and do you pay any credence at all to the notion that somehow it's possible to advance as a kind of political and rhetorical strategy? The notion that, say, socialism is actually quite American. (laughs) Well, and that comes up a lot when I talk about cooperative enterprise. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in the context of that specifically, I would say that this isn't something that's coming. It's something that's here. If people in our nation knew how many businesses were ultimately cooperatives, then they would understand that it's a necessary addition to how this economy develops. Lando Lakes Butter is a cooperative. Mm-hmm. Florida Orange Growers is a cooperative. You're a part of a credit union. You're a part of nothing more than than a cooperative. Even though I'm I'm originally from Detroit, and it pains me to say this, one of the largest cooperatives we know today is the Green Bay Packers, right? Uh, that is owned by <laughs> the community. You're a Lions fan, I take it. Yeah, yeah I, I am, I am. Let you know I can endure struggle, okay? Uh, but... You know, those are ideas of how communities see something that they find value in it and support it, and it works right. for the benefit of, of those communities. And so we can we can broaden that. Now, in terms of this notion of, of the scary word socialism, what mm-hmm. I would say is that we have to find an, an opportunity to exploit operational unity because people have been conditioned or, or told to fear myself and, and other people who are speaking this way. You know, I find here in Jackson that, that there are people that I now engage in conversations that, that learn that, you know, I'm not such a scary guy. I'm actually pretty nice, right? Right. Uh, I'm passionate <laughs> uh, and right. I'm concerned about people and, and I'm not trying to work towards the detriment of anyone. And so this notion or this discussion that tries to push back, that it's trying to take away value or take away something from someone else, is, is something that we have to shift that dynamic and, and exploit operational unity, which focuses more on our common ends and objectives than our differences. And, and in doing so, you find a space or an opportunity to have a conversation that, that may not have previously been envisioned. And when we shift the narrative and really explain to people how they have not been benefited from the system as it exists, then you find kind of that aha moment where people see that that this is really true. You know, if we go back to the the roots of slavery in Mississippi, mm-hmm. we know who the obvious victims of slavery are. Right. But we very rarely have a conversation in Mississippi about poor white families and the majority of families who did not own slaves and how right. they were exploited. It was a labor system that provided no opportunity for you. So, Mayor Lamumba, given your your father's electoral success and and now your own, does it tell us anything about the viability of socialism in electoral politics specifically? Yeah, well, you know, I would share with you uh, the very thing that my father stated after his election is that the election or his election or the election of a progressive ideal says, honestly, less about the candidate, less about us and more about uh, the people. The selection of our leadership demonstrates the readiness of the people. And I think if we can find people ready for change in Mississippi, people who have been oppressed in so many ways, honestly, oppression has the potential to be the greatest organizer of all time, then it suggests where we can build to in conversations that we are prepared to take on now throughout the nation and throughout the world. I just want to take a quick moment to thank a few patrons who are going above and beyond supporting the show beyond the regular membership level, and these folks have been around for years. So huge thanks to Corey R., Raymond in Arkansas, Lorelai, Eaton B., Brianna P., your friend and mine, Roger Ray, coincidentally, he popped up on the list, and he's going to be in today's show. And as a side note, I got to say, Roger's put me in a difficult situation. You know, he runs his little progressive church in Missouri. I, I don't think he even qualifies as a, as, a, as a blue spot in a sea of red. It's just a speck, a speck of blue. 
uh, just right around his his church building there. And he has his congregation right there in Springfield, but then he also broadcasts to the internet, obviously, which is how we all come to hear him. And, and you know, they're always asking for money to support their good works, right? And I think I would support that. Oh, wait, I can't because Roger's already supporting me. And what are we going to do? Just cancel each other out? I'm going to start supporting the church and the only one who wins are the, the payment processing companies. So, yeah, unfortunately, I, I, I can't support the work he's doing, but he has no one but himself to blame. And then finally, thanks to Angelo M., Scott B., Kevin F., and Louis H. Thanks again so much for your continued support. As you no doubt know by now, I could not do it without you. As for the rest of you, let me paint you just a little bit more of a picture as to why I need uh, more members right now. First, yes, we lost the bulk of our advertisers this year. We haven't been able to make up that ground yet. We set a goal of a thousand patrons. We've only hit 700 up to this point. Luckily, some of those patrons are a little, you know, overly generous. And so that, that helped balance it out, but really we're not there yet. But on top of that, of course, every month we have members who end up canceling. And so it can be hard just to break even over time. When people cancel, they are asked why they're leaving. And the vast majority have something nice to say, and it's usually financial reasons. Very understandable. But in addition to those, I get some really interesting ones, and they've been giving me some insight into the split on the left playing out right there in my cancellations. So for instance, these, these are all from the, within the last three months or so. Quote, not enjoying it the way I used to, I guess I moved further left and this is too centrist. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the second one. Although I have considered myself a progressive for years, the escalation of white heterosexual male privilege bashing has become too much for me to bear. Okay, I I guess. <laughs> that's the that that's a strange one, I think. Uh and then finally, tired of all the Bernie love, everyone is bad, but Bernie is no way to gain support. So my takeaway from these is that, first of all, it is absolutely impossible to make a show that would satisfy all three of these people at the same time. Can't do it. But but here's the thing. These aren't three people who just came across the show or they were, you know, presented this show and asked, you know, would you support it financially? And they said, uh, no, it's not really my thing. These are three people who at some point decided to sign up and support the show and then over time felt so strongly about what may or may not be, you know, a large or small difference in our opinions and felt so strongly about that. They said, okay, I have to cancel my support for this show. I can't go on giving them money in a moment in time when I was particularly talking about our financial troubles due to the loss of the vast majority of our advertisers. So in a way, I find it kind of fascinating to, the, to just watch the split in the left play itself out like that in, in these fine grain ways. But since it's impacting the financial health of the show, I also find it a little horrifying. So if you get value out of the show and you think it's worth supporting, even if you don't agree with it 100% of the time, which you are almost certainly not going to do, we have higher levels for those who 
wants to give more and can give more like the people I was thanking earlier, but also we have a lower level that doesn't provide bonus content, but you can get the show ad free for just two bucks a month because I appreciate any dollar amount you can afford and wanted to make something available even at that low level. To sign up, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft, which is linked right in the show notes on your device and on our website. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash bestofleft. But almost everyone that you hear using the term socialism as a scare word, doesn't have the slightest idea what socialism is. And everyone who assumes that our budget pockets are bottomless, such that the government could pay for everything, simply doesn't understand economics. America has a blended economic system. Some of it is private, and some of it is public. The current problem is that our economic system has been manipulated to redistribute wealth upward, which is going to destroy capitalism if it goes on. It will also destroy public services if we do not correct course. My own belief is that the course correction needs to be dramatic and it needs to come pretty soon. So there's either a violent revolution or there's a peaceful revolution, but our national economic system will not sustain itself the way that it is going. And as, as President Kennedy observed years ago, those who prevent peaceful revolution make violent revolution necessary. So we can either be smart in changing our economic system and doing it peacefully, or we can wait until the desperation reaches the stage of violent public revolution. I understand that the terms socialism and capitalism are not being used in a technically correct way in our political dialogue. What we're really talking about is the divide between what is paid for individually and what is paid for corporately. Even people who have good health insurance if you talk about socialism as what is paid for corporately, no one, unless you were super rich, could afford to get cancer and pay for it out of your pocket. Insurance is always a collectivizing of, of uh, experience. It's a matter of shared risk. So whether you share it across society or you share it across a large corporation, it is still what we really mean by a socialist or public system. For example, the cost of public schools, kindergarten through 12th grade. We understand that our society needs to have an educated populace. So we pay corporately for kindergarten through 12th grade, largely through property taxes. In a more convoluted way, we contribute to the cost of state universities and to a lesser degree through some private colleges, scholarship programs, and trade schools. But somehow people have been taught to think that kindergarten through 12th grade being supported by the public is just what you do. That's God-ordained. 
But if you try to add four years to that, that makes the whole system socialist. Whether you personally go to college or not, you get to live in a better society if the people who, for example, will take care of you when you get cancer and you go to the hospital, if they went to college. Whether it's a trade school or a professional school or a liberal arts college, we as citizens in society benefit from being in a society where more people have training and education. If you don't believe me, try going home this afternoon and painting your own car. As Dr. Cornell West makes so clear in our wisdom lesson today, the United States has always had a blended economy, with some of it being what we call socialist or publicly funded programs, and a lot of it being capitalist or private for-profit systems. My suit, my shoes, my glasses, my shirt, my tie were all made by capitalists. But this morning I woke up to publicly subsidized electricity, lighting and air conditioning my home. I showered and made coffee with publicly subsidized water. I drove here on public streets. Our streets are protected by publicly funded socialist police. Our borders are protected by a publicly funded socialist army, air force, and navy. And our building here is protected by a socialist fire department. And though I stopped at a capitalist restaurant on my way here, the pork, poultry, dairy, and grain products on my plate were all subsidized crops in one way or another by the public. You know, taxes are always a matter of redistribution of wealth. We use taxes to create a civilization. Sure, we subsidize school lunches. And we should want to feed our kids, but do you know why we started a federal school lunch program? It was started in the 1940s under Harry Truman because military leaders feared that our American school kids were too malnourished to be good soldiers. The military has lately gotten involved in the school lunch debate again because now they think American students are too fat to fight. As a pastor, I would love to see our nation go to universal health coverage because it is the morally right thing to do to provide health care to sick people, whether they're rich people or poor people, but we will do it because it is cost-effective. I wish that we would make college tuition uh, tuition free because we want the children of the poor and the children of the wealthy to have the same uh, access to education and career opportunities as the wealthy. But we will do it because all of these other countries are already doing it. And they will economically beat our butts in the marketplace if we don't start providing tuition free college. Now, speaking of fake memes, most of you will have heard the 19th century French political philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville quoted as having said that America is great because she is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Sounds really good, but uh, Tocqueville visited America in the uh, 19th century as uh, we were killing all of the Indians in a major genocide and as we were escalating African slavery. De Tocqueville did not think that we were good. <laughs> in fact, he, uh, he spoke at length about the irony of how popular churches are in America 
and how willing we were to be cruel to Indians and black slaves, a kind of social schizophrenia that continues to this day, as we, as a nation full of churches, still appear to be willing to grind the children of the poor up to make the bread for the tables of the rich. He did, however, think that we were hardworking and very ingenious people. I hate to give up on thinking that America could be great because Americans are good, but I have a hope that America could become great again because we're smart, because we realize that some things are done better, more efficiently, and more affordably when they are done through public funding. When everyone gets a living wage, when everyone has access to health care and education and housing, then everyone, the rich and the poor, get to live in a society that is healthier, happier, and smarter. Unlike our president, I actually have been to Denmark. I didn't go to, to buy Greenland, of course. I went on a rather more obscure goal of visiting the home and the grave of Soren Kierkegaard, which I understand means that I have issues, but that doesn't come as a surprise to anyone. After a frozen slog through the icy slush of Copenhagen, I was warming up over a mug of hot cocoa and met a very attractive young Danish dentist. And when she found out that I was spending my three days in Denmark just visiting Kierkegaard uh, memorabilia, she insisted upon giving me a whirlwind tour of Copenhagen. Now, she was an immigrant from Iran, but you could have never met a native-born Dane who had uh, a higher regard for Denmark than she has. We walked through the frozen but very festive Tivoli Gardens and, and then the largest open-air mall in the world, featuring many of the classic Danish designs in China and furniture and electronics. And in the midst of this crowded mall, she threw her arms open wide and said, Do you see any beggars? Do you see anyone who is homeless? Do you see anyone who doesn't even have a good warm coat or good shoes? She said, sure, we have a 50% tax rate, but we have no poverty. We have almost no crime. She said, I live alone in a house with a view of the ocean, and I drive two different Mercedes. Taxes don't matter if you get to live a prosperous life. And she, my friends, is a socialist. But more than that, she's a decent human being who has empathy. And that's what I hope for in America. Even what you're describing still, sorry to put my European hat on, is not that left wing. I mean, the NHS, the National Health Service in the UK, is backed even by conservative politicians, cradle to grave free health care. And I'm always amazed at how much hate Bernie Sanders gets, even from centrists in the US, as a socialist, as a lefty, when by international standards, as you know, he's not that left wing. Right. Compared to Jeremy I mean, Corbyn, for example. Well, yeah, the United States has to start somewhere, right? 
Um, (laughs) Because we don't have this tradition and because we're kind of starting from scratch, when you have institutions like the NHS in the UK, you already have proof of concept that these things work, can function, and that they're politically resilient. I think it's very important what you point out, that even conservatives in the UK are hesitant to recommend abolishing the NHS and replacing it with private insurance and private health care. And that's because it's a very politically resilient program. It affects everybody. Uh, and that's part of what socialists in the United States are arguing, is that if we had some of those programs, you might see more resilience in them than in the sort yes, of liberal solutions sure. to the same problems like the ACA. What do you say to conservatives in the U.S., especially on Fox News, who get very worked up when people like yourself say, well, hold on, or Bernie says, you know, Nordic countries, forget USSR, forget Venezuela, look at the Nordic countries, look at Scandinavia, look at Denmark, etc. And they say, well, that's not socialism. That's a kind of mild social democracy. They're still working within a capitalist framework, working with markets. That's not fair for you to invoke them. What do you say in response to that? Okay, well, if it sounds capitalist to you, let's do that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, if their view is that that's not socialism, then all right, why aren't we doing it? Good point. That's a good point. But what do you think? Do you personally believe that that is socialism? Do those countries count as socialist role models? Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at socialism as sort of a set of qualities, and then you can see uh, to what degree certain countries adopt those qualities. I think it's hard to identify a 51% mark where you become 51% socialist and are therefore a fully <laughs> socialist nation. Um, but you can look at certain it's indicators. Yeah, exactly. And and Norway, as a matter of fact, as my husband, Matt Brunig, is a policy analyst, likes to point out, the state own, owns more of the nation's wealth than Venezuela. Um, so, you know, at least by that measure, it's more socialist. Um, and, and you see all kinds of strange definitions of socialism. Brett Stevens had an article about Venezuela that basically defines socialism as a type of economy where there's extreme mismanagement and some entitlement programs. <laughs> uh, well, that would mean the United States is already socialist. Um, That's a very but, good point. I think it's fair to say, you know, that well, programs... The United States that, is socialist for the rich. Yeah. Right, right, right. I mean, that that's certainly an aspect of it. But I think it's fair to say that if you're taking uh, major sectors of the economy and applying democratic control to them uh, and making them uh, universally accessible, you're moving towards socialism, even if you're not getting 100% there instantly. You argue that while the the destruction and change wrought by global warming in particular is terrifying, it also forces us to discard any notion that the system as it is, is unchangeable because things are, are indeed changing. You write, quote, the world is changing, whether we like it or not. And as we face that crucial fact, we might as well try to change it for the better by fighting to ensure that more of us have a chance to enjoy the blessings that liberal democracy promised, but also by refusing to abandon the possibility that even more satisfying, sustainable, and dignified forms of life might lie ahead. Donna Haraway has this phrase, staying with the trouble. How do you, how do you think about this profoundly chaotic and undetermined unknowability of the future how do you simultaneously deal with what's really terrifying about that and also embrace it as an opportunity that motivates you to take action i think the simple answer is that we just have no other choice <laughs> i mean the 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 path that we're on is if we don't intervene is so bleak 
I mean, if we think, if we're devastated by what we see at the borders now, by you know people drowning in the Mediterranean, then you know, just wait until the climate crisis is going full tilt. So I think there's just a sense of there is no alternative to fighting against the world that seems to be on the on the horizon. The staying with the trouble thing, though, speaks to me. Um, and the whole point of of the book, which I I'd summarize a little bit at the end of the New Republic piece, but the whole point of this book, democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone, is that you know, we have to get comfortable with these challenges, philosophical and political challenges, and get comfortable with uncertainty. So, you know, the book, in a way, is an argument with this idea that it's a sort of argument with utopian socialism in a way, right? This, you know, Marx, I, I quote Marx in, in the New Republic essay saying, you know, communism is the riddle of history solved, right? This idea that there's a promised land that lays ahead. That there's an end of history, that that's what utopia is. You're right. An end of politics. Yeah, and into politics, exactly. And that, you know, we, we won't be alienated. I mean, maybe I just think alienation is just, you know, I think we could get over uh, the alienated labor <laughs> and, and capitalist exploitation, but I still think we'll have all sorts of problems. And so each chapter of the book is about the way a problem. Your relationship will- to your mother and your girlfriend will not automatically <laughs> become perfect. <laughs> under socialism might be better might be better without all the horrific systematic stress being put on your private life but <laughs> yeah or maybe like without that systematic stress you'd actually have to face your shit and it would actually be more painful i you know we yeah. don't know because we're not living in it right <laughs> um there might be a, a reason that people flee from themselves but so the, each chapter of the book is about a tension or a dichotomy that i think will persist right even even in conditions of economic egalitarianism Totalitarianism. Like, again, we'll have to wrestle with the question of inclusion and exclusion. We'll have to wrestle with how to balance the needs of people who live now with people in the future, right? So you can imagine, so somehow we'll have to think as we create this democratic socialist world, you know, that's supposedly ecologically sustainable. We'll have to think about people who don't exist yet. Um, We'll always have to balance our local communities with the fact we live in a, a global world. So, you know, I think, I think staying with the trouble is something that we, you know, we have to incorporate into our political thought and our, our political praxis while also trying to be pragmatic and also being like, okay, well, you know, there is no utopia for us to just leap into. So, you know, what are the, Levers of poli- levers of change in the here and now. What are the messy struggles I can get involved in? So, for me, the fact that we're facing change doesn't—I mean, it distresses me. It distresses me when I when I think about the you know ramifications of climate change. But it's also like you know, change is a constant, and so we we have to intervene. What I was responding to uh, in the piece specifically was going to this conference, talking to, you know, more establishment liberal types, you know, and people who really just wanted to engage in the sort of politics of what they saw as the status quo, get rid of these sort of recent aberrations, get rid of Trump, restore the norms. <laughs> and, you know, it's partly just to remind them, like, you know, we're not, that's a fantasy. It's not going to happen, right? Big change is coming. And, you know, let's try to, let's, let's try to make it good.
American democratic socialists have been around for a very, very long time. Uh, about a hundred years ago, the mayors of cities like Berkeley, Troy, Milwaukee were all socialist. Uh, we had members of Congress like Victor Berger was a socialist. Eugene Debs got one million uh, votes. In some places like Oklahoma, it was really one of the largest parties around was the mm -hmm. socialist party. So you could say that socialism was maybe not the mass force that it was in Europe, but in certain parts of the U.S., it was, and it seemed like it was becoming that way. And socialists themselves embedded themselves as part of much larger reform efforts. And this was true throughout the 20th century. So in the early years, socialists were fighting for things like women's suffrage. They were fighting to create labor unions and then to democratize and integrate those labor unions. You have this massive expansion of industry and westward movement, but life out there in the, the West and these mining towns and places like that was extremely precarious. So often one company would, would be the largest kind of company that would run basically a town. Uh, then all these workers would be herded together in the worst conditions possible. So you, you have the perfect moment where where people realize that they're either going to starve in this country, many of them are immigrants, so this this place that, that was completely new to them, or they're going to figure out a way to band together and organize collectively. And they did organize across different nationalities, people who spoke different languages, across different races. They figured out a way to to fight together. And socialists were there with a very confident and simple appeal. And the appeal is is something that, that's been very consistent from the time of Eugene Debs to Norm Thomas to now Bernie Sanders, which is that, you know, you work hard, you're playing by the rules, so you deserve you deserve more. But it's not just a matter of us banding together and getting getting more because we're asking nicely, but in fact there's powerful people that have a benefit, you know, benefit from the status quo and we're gonna have to take wealth and power away from them if we're gonna build a better world for everyone. Yeah. And that message has been consistent. While democratic socialists never came close to controlling Congress or the presidency, their ideas influenced the New Deal, which in turn steered the country away from the dead ends of oligarchy and fascism. We in the United States, thank God, made a different choice than Europe did in responding to the era's social and economic crises. We rejected the ideology of Mussolini and Hitler, and we instead embraced the bold and visionary leadership of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, then the leader of the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. <laughs> Together with organized labor, leaders in the African-American community and progressives inside and outside the Democratic Party, Roosevelt led a transformation of the American government and the American economy. Like today, the quest for transformative change was opposed by big business, by Wall Street, by the political establishment, by the Republican Party, and by the conservative wing of FDR's own Democratic Party. And he faced the same scare tactics then that we experience today. Red baiting, xenophobia, racism, and anti-Semitism. In a famous 1936 campaign speech, Roosevelt stated, and I quote, we had to struggle with the old enemies of peace, business and financial monopoly, speculation, reckless banking, 
class antagonism, sectionalism, war profiteering. They had begun to consider the government of the United States as a mere appendage to their own affairs. We know now that government by organized money is just as dangerous as government by organized mob. And Roosevelt concluded, and I quote, never before in all our history have these forces been so united against one candidate as they stand today. They are unanimous in their hate for me, and I welcome their hatred. Now, FDR never described himself as a democratic socialist. And many today ask, if Bernie's hearkening back to the politics of FDR and the New Deal, why call himself a democratic socialist when other terms are perhaps more familiar to the American public? Baskar explained that the label makes sense for Bernie both personally and strategically. Well, first of all, it's what he, he is since his, you know, in the 19, early 1960s, he got politicized in the Young People's Socialist League. Uh, this is his tradition, his background. His worldview was forged by communicating with socialists, by taking part in the socialist movement and civil rights movement and the labor movement. So, you know, there's, there's that. So why would he lie about how he came to these ideas and how he identifies, you know, himself? So I think, first of all, his credibility is the most important thing the Sanders, you know, has going for him. Because even people who disagree with his policies at least say, oh, that's an honest guy. Yeah. You know, he has that going for him. And that's, that's the reason why even a lot of self-described moderates vote for Sanders over, over other politicians yeah. and will support him in this, this coming election. Beyond that, they're going to call a socialist anyway. Yeah. You know, if you're for, they called Obama a socialist right. for the most mild reform program possible, a program that many of us on the left thought was, you know, in part, you know, there was good aspects to it, like Medicaid you know, expansion. Yeah. They called that radical socialism. They're going to call a socialist anyway. We might as well define and explain what it's about. And as Bernie has always made exceedingly clear, some of the most powerful forces in this country and in the world are going to oppose us every step of the way, just as they did FDR. By rallying the American people, FDR and his progressive coalition created the New Deal, won four terms, and created an economy that worked for all and not just the few. Today, New Deal initiatives like Social Security, Unemployment Compensation, the right to form a union, the minimum wage, protection for farmers, regulation of Wall Street, and massive infrastructure improvements are considered pillars of American society. But while he stood up for the working families of our country, we can never forget that President Roosevelt was reviled by the oligarchs of his time, who berated these extremely popular programs as socialism. Similarly, in the 1960s, when President Lyndon Johnson brought about Medicare, Medicaid, and other extremely popular and important programs, he was also viciously attacked by the ruling class of this country. And here is the point. It is no exaggeration to state that not only did FDR's agenda improve the lives of millions of Americans, but the New Deal was enormously popular politically 
and help defeat far-right extremism. For a time. Today, America and the world are once again moving toward authoritarianism and the same right-wing forces of oligarchy, corporatism, nationalism, racism, and xenophobia are on the march, pushing us to make the apocalyptically wrong choice that Europe made in the last century. Today, we now see a handful of billionaires with unprecedented wealth and power. We see huge private monopolies operating outside of any real democratic oversight and often subsidized by taxpayers with the power to control almost every aspect of our lives. They are the profit-taking gatekeepers of our health care, our technology, our finance system, our food supply, and almost all of the other basic necessities of life. And let us name them. They are Wall Street, the insurance companies, the drug companies, the fossil fuel industry, the military-industrial complex, the prison-industrial complex, and giant agribusiness. They are the entities with unlimited wealth who surround our nation's capital with thousands of well-paid lobbyists who, to a very significant degree, write the laws that we live under. And so Bernie called for us to finish with the New Deal started. Today, in the second decade of the 21st century, we must take up the unfinished business of the New Deal and carry it to completion. This is the unfinished business of the Democratic Party and the vision we together must accomplish. In order to accomplish that goal, it means committing ourselves to protecting political rights, to protecting civil rights, and to protect economic rights for all of the people in our country. We've just heard clips today, starting with Washington State Indivisible explaining that the best way to describe socialism is to not debate the term at all, but just to talk about the future we want to build. Tom Hartman pointed out that we'd be much better off debating the meaning of freedom rather than the meaning of socialism. The Benjamin Dixon Show discussed why socialism is as American and as scary as the post office. Backstory spoke with the socialist mayor from Jackson, Mississippi. Dr. Roger Ray, in his Progressive Faith sermon, talked about how to build a good society and the need to support peaceful change lest we necessitate violent change. Deconstructed discussed the fact that even our most extremely left politician is pretty middle of the road by international standards. 
The Dig from Jacobin talked about the nature of climate change and our economic system making change inevitable. And finally, we just heard Hear the Burn giving a quick history of the opposition to socialism. And don't forget to hear all of our bonus content, which includes bonus clips, more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode. Sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. Now, I'm skipping voicemails for today. I wanted to talk about a couple elements of how we are having the discussions we're having in the face of the coming election and the debate over Bernie Sanders in particular and what he represents or doesn't and what is socialism and all of that. And and it got me thinking about the impact of early indoctrination. So... At the risk of making a really distasteful comparison, I'm going to do it anyway. So th- this research article came out a few years ago titled Nazi Indoctrination and Anti-Semitic Beliefs in Germany. And here's just the one paragraph description. Attempts at modifying public opinions, attitudes, and beliefs range from advertising and schooling to brainwashing. Their effectiveness is highly controversial. We demonstrate that Nazi indoctrination, with its singular focus on fostering racial hatred, was highly effective. Germans who grew up under the Nazi regime are much more anti-Semitic today than those born before or after that period. These findings demonstrate that beliefs can be modified massively through policy intervention. End quote. So, the thing with Americans— is, uh, you know, having a conversation like this would be difficult, uh, referring to America, because we don't like to believe in the past having an effect on the present. We don't like to believe that slavery and Jim Crow has any lasting uh, ramifications for racism today. You know, women being handled as, as property surely has left no legacy of sexism. And since we won the Cold War, That only means that all of our assumptions and beliefs were proved correct, and there have been no lingering effects whatsoever. And so when you think about the people who grew up during the Cold War, and I would urge you to think of them with compassion and empathy, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be not only the recipient of the level of anti-communist propaganda that was being put out at the time. But to all, and then of course the conflation with socialism and just the mixing of those words entirely. Um, But also the genuine trauma of the Cold War, the constant threat of nuclear annihilation, you know, nuclear bomb drills, hiding under desks, all that sort of thing. Like I can't even imagine how traumatizing that would be. I don't think, I mean, as, as, uh, you know, potentially offensive as it is, hopefully everyone will take it in the, in the spirit in which I mean it. Obviously, I don't think that, you know, Americans who lived through the Cold War are anything like Nazis, but the comparison is that propaganda works. Propaganda can fundamentally change people's minds and keep them that way for decades. The lingering effects are palpable. So, As we heard today, I don't think it makes sense to debate the term socialism 
with people. You know, some some people are over it. They they don't mind. Their impression of socialism is Canadian healthcare. But a lot of people are stuck in that Cold War mindset, and that is not a debate worth having with those people. And since you don't know which people are in that mindset, I, I just I don't think it makes sense to debate the term socialism at all. Like Naomi Klein wrote a whole book about how capitalism was going to destroy the planet with climate change, but when she was asked what ec- economic system she wanted, you know, do, do you need to, you want to tear down capitalism and replace it with something else? She said, "To be honest, I don't care what the system is called." If you want to continue to call it capitalism, I don't care as long as the dangerous aspects of the system were fixed. That's what matters. So in short, the name doesn't matter, only the policy matters. So that's one aspect, the the hangover, the extreme hangover from the Cold War that we are still experiencing. But that said, a lot of people aren't actually afraid of socialism. A lot of people have gotten the message or they were never inf- you know fully indoctrinated in the first place. And a lot of people either uh, don't mind the term socialism, they think of it quite positively, feelings about capitalism are going down while feelings towards socialism are going up and all of that. But what we know for sure is that people are concerned about electability. In this election. So that takes us to our second point, focusing more specifically on the election. Now, electability is a messy term that with a lot of parts that sort of flow into it. And you can see how socialism is connected. A person who has no problem with the term socialism themselves may think, oh, but other people will have a problem with it. And so that hurts a person's electability. So that's when you end up with a self-fulfilling prophecy of people worrying about what other people will think and then voting based on their worries about other people, whether they are really founded or not. Now, what we are really experiencing is a desperation for normalcy. That That's what, you know, all the, the sort of the exit polls, the polls of people voting, especially those voting for Biden, they respond saying, what I want is a return to normalcy and decency. In essence, a return to pre-Trump. Whatever was happening before Trump was fine. And if we could just go back to that, I mean, how could we possibly go uh, any better back to pre-Trump than just elect the vice president of the guy who was there before? Makes some degree of sense. But here's here's how I think of it. And um it wasn't explicit, but it was touched on in today's episode. A couple of different clips talked about the need to be ready for change, the need for openness to change, because sometimes change is coming whether you want it or not. And so uh, to help direct that change in a positive way requires the willingness to go with that change rather than to ignore it or leave it up to someone else to decide how we're going to change. So here's how I think of it. Uh, and I'm comparing a uh, you know, little analogy between the election and climate change and climate investment and mitigation and all of that, because that, that's a concept that we're pretty familiar with. So there are basically three choices of how you could deal with climate change. You could 
invest in climate change aversion and mitigation. Uh, Number two, you could acknowledge the problem but do nothing. That's what we've been doing, pretty much. And then the third option is to deny the problem exists. I, I suppose there's more options where you could like deny the problem exists but work to fix it anyway, but uh, that seems unlikely. So we'll stick with those three. So here's how I think of this election as compared to climate change, because climate change is coming, whether we want it to or not. And so we just have a choice about how to deal with it. Or, I mean, I suppose you have a choice to deny it, but... That doesn't seem like a good choice. The populist revolution, not just in America, but around the world, is coming or has already arrived on many of our doorsteps. So this revolution is coming one way or another. A vote for a moderate Democrat in today's context is a vote for option B. I'm going to acknowledge that there's a problem, but refuse to do anything to fix it. I I can see that, you know, Trump and his ilk and his supporters are bad for society and leaving us, you know, or heading us in a bad direction. So I'm against that, but I'm not in favor of changing anything or protecting against that kind of a violent revolution going forward at anything more than just a surface level. I just want to paper over the problems to make it look good and feel good again, and assume that that'll be enough. That is not going to be enough. It wasn't enough before. Whatever happened before Trump is what gave us Trump. It's how we ended up with the level of anger that we are experiencing the world round about hyper-inequality, the negative effects of globalization, unresponsiveness of government, all of these things combine to lead to an absolute demand for change coming from both the populist left and right. So to go back to that makes as much sense as patting yourself on the back for acknowledging the existence of climate change but refusing to take any action to avert it. Again, just like climate change, actually, uh, being right is not enough. How we make the case is, unfortunately, just as important as being right. And so I will say again to Bernie supporters and anyone out there trying to make the case for progressive populism, uh, number one, you catch more flies with honey than with a shotgun. And it's important to remember that there are a lot of people in the country who don't want revolution. They prefer nothing. And so the message that needs to be gotten across is that the revolution is coming whether they want it or not. We are seeing the beginning of it. Trump is the evidence of the fact that a revolution is absolutely inevitable, but it is still up to us in these early stages to decide which direction it goes. So I, I wish that I could give people the option of, uh, you know what, I'd like, uh, I'd like to say no on revolution. Could we just not have one? I wish that was an option for people, but it's not. So it's up to all of us to get the message out there that uh, this is not a time for fence-sitting. Fence-sitting in the coming populist revolution 
is equivalent to fence sitting on climate change. Basically, it means uh, I'm I'm happy to allow it to continue unencumbered. And uh, unfortunately, that works uh, both literally and metaphorically. So if you have thoughts on this or anything else, I would love to hear it. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And now to wrap up with everyone's favorite news by Limerick, I could not believe this one was real for a minute. I had to double check to make sure it wasn't just a photoshopped funny scam sort of thing. But no, Donald Trump really did tweet this, which, of course, is all you need to know to know that this isn't really news. This is just one of those ridiculous things that reminds us of the absurdity of our modern times. So someone uh, on the Internet presumably created an image of Donald Trump playing a violin with the sort of meme text, my next piece is called Nothing Can Stop What's Coming, obviously making the comparison between fiddling while Rome burns to Trump's uh, totally incompetent response to the coronavirus. Well, Trump saw it, didn't have any idea what it meant, but liked it anyways and tweeted out, who knows what this means, but it sounds good to me. To which, at Liberix on Twitter, responds, A picture of Trump on a fiddle is Donald's new favorite riddle. He thinks he's the hero, but really is Nero. Shit burns while his thumbs merely twiddle. <laughs>